Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Well, let's bring Stephen Holder into the conversation. He covers the Colts for ESPN. Steve, uh, hope you had a great weekend, man. Uh, what, what were you doing on, on Memorial Day weekend? Did you indulge in the Indy 500 or any uh, NBA action? What did you have going on over there? Um, I, I did watch Game 7. Uh, didn't see much of the 500, but I, uh, in, in um, solidarity with all the, the folks out there, I, I did have my share of uh, alcohol, or excuse me, uh, adult beverages. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I know I had, that, was, that was pretty much. And then I did spend a little time over the grill, but, um, but much more time eating. So, yeah, it was good. Now, how would you rate the, the grill prowess that you have over there? Um, I, can, I can do everything from the point of the meat hitting the grill. Everything before that, um, I am not so skilled at. So the preparation, <laughs> I, can, I can take it from the, the prep to the, uh, to the actual finished product, but uh, I can get you over the finish line to keep with the theme. Let's put it that way. Man, but, I feel uh, like yeah. I'm like you. I feel like you, Stephen, because I, I've noticed <laughs> I've got a lot of grill snob friends. Because they'll mm. they'll kill me. They're like, you don't prepare the meat. You don't do this. You don't do what are you doing? It's like, bro, I'm just trying to cook lane. something on the grill. Yeah. yeah, I stay in my lane, man. You know, it's like you don't want me going out there and writing stories about lacrosse, right? Because <laughs> I would not be very good at that. So I stick to football. You know, and you know, I can mess with basketball. I did do that in a previous life, but you know, but my my expertise, I know where it is, man. You know, I know where the bread is buttered. So no doubt. Good. No doubt about that, man. Well, how about this with DeAndre Hopkins, released by the Arizona Cardinals? Uh, the Colts have a lot of cap room. He has said that he wants to go to a, a contender, right? Like at this stage of his career, it's year 11. He wants to go to a contender, wants to have a proven quarterback. That, to me, wouldn't indicate Colts. What do you think the chances are that he would end up in Indy? Yeah, I, I don't see the fit, honestly. And I don't mean it from a football perspective. I just mean it from the standpoint of, of where the two sides are in, in their current situations. I mean, as you mentioned, DeAndre Hopkins is a guy who, yeah, you know, look, his best years are probably behind him. So in, in what he has left of his prime, I'm sure he wants to win. He hasn't done very much of that. And so that's, that's a reality. And then the, the thing is with the Colts, even though – I I fully embrace the idea of them beefing up their skill talent at those skill positions. I, I'm totally on board with that, and I think that's something that they have overlooked for a long time. However, I think the reality is with, with DeAndre Hopkins, what you have there is a player who uh, – I don't mean to – say this in a disparaging way, but he's kind of a he's kind of for hire right now. The Colts are trying to build and I don't think this is a long term move. This is a short term or would be a short term move more than likely. And so if that's the case, to what end? You know, are are the Colts trying to win the Super Bowl this year? No. I I think those well they're trying. They're probably not gonna do it though, right? So I think mm-hmm. 
the the reality is if the Colts are going to to beef up those skill positions, I think the way to do it is through the draft or or perhaps you're getting somebody on the cheap that maybe you can develop. Right, right now, I don't think that that's, that's really a move like this is in the cards for them. Yeah, I, I think the same thing as you do. What if, if we suspended reality and for whatever reason, like DeAndre Hopkins said, I think Richardson is going to be the real deal. I want to be a member of the Colts. And he wanted to sign for something that was – relatively reasonable what do you think the Colts reaction would be to him being uh willing to be a Colt yeah now that gets interesting I'll say this (laughs) if you're the Colts you know better than most what this guy is capable of I mean I've been in person at quite a few games where DeAndre Hopkins got the best of the Colts okay they they know this from his his Houston days and, and that was a team that at times didn't have a whole lot of other talent around him. So there's no doubt about it. I mean, they are intimately familiar with this guy's ability. And, and he gives them something or would give them something that, that I just think they kind of lack, which is, uh, although I, I really like Michael Pittman and his, his reliability, his toughness, all those things, uh, I think what you would get in a guy like DeAndre Hopkins is, it doesn't matter if he's covered. You know, mm-hmm. he's a guy who you can force the ball to him and he's going to come down with it. I mean, people, the quarterbacks have done it time and time again. Uh, he is, he's never been a guy who relied on, you know, sort of four, three, you know, 40 yard dash speed. I mean, he, he can run adequately, but that's not his game. His game is I'm going to uh, outfight people for the football, I'm going to outjump them, I'm going to outfight them wrestle it away, whatever. And he, he also has the ability to just make just insane catches that are, that just kind of defy logic, you know, just by contorting his body and and things of that nature. He, he really has an unbelievable blend of athleticism and, and toughness that I think would bring a new dimension to the Colts wide receiver room. But yeah, do I think it's going to happen? No, but, but if you, but if, if there was some scenario where, where it became possible, I, I think it would be what kind of boost would that be for Anthony Richardson? Oh, my God. I mean, mm. it would be unbelievable. It would. It absolutely would. He's Stephen Holder, covers the Colts for ESPN. The top teams, instead of in, in, uh, in terms of having the most cap space, as I'm sure you know, Stephen, Bears at the top of the list, followed by the Panthers, Lions, and then the Colts. And while, I mean, I don't know that you're seeing Super Bowl contenders with any of those teams, like maybe the Lions in that group, do you see any of these, those other teams saying, hey, we might not be Super Bowl contenders, but we got a lot of cap space. We're going to make a serious offer to DeAndre Hopkins here. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what Detroit's perspective on on adding, you know, big free agents is, but, you know, if, if they're a team that – that I, I, well, let's put it this way. They are a team that thinks they have a run in them. I, I think they have to feel good after last year. And, you know, I'm not saying they're one player away from the Super Bowl. I don't think that's true. But they are in the NFC, which mm-hmm. is a good place to be right now because, <laughs> because all the quarterback talent is on the other side in the AFC. And they're in a division that just lost Aaron Rodgers and really I don't think has – has really a, a team that's an overwhelming favorite 
Um, and, and, you know, the team that's, that's a threat to them is Minnesota. And, and frankly, I think they go toe-to-toe with Minnesota and, and may have the, the better team, frankly. So <laughs> I think Detroit is a really interesting team. That they're a team to watch, I think, generally this year um, because I think they're at the front end of whatever run they're trying to make here. And so let's see what, what kind of step they take, how big of a step they can take this year. And a guy like that could help them take a bigger step. I'll say this on the cap space in regard to the Colts. I'm very interested to see how they go about you know, handling that. I don't think they're going to go out on some kind of shopping spree or anything because there's nowhere to spend it anyway for the most part. But uh, I'm interested to see do they make a move and, and get Jonathan Taylor re-signed? What do they do with Michael Pittman? You know, I think they're going to have more of these situations as they move forward, and it's going to be interesting to see if they if they do those deals earlier than later, or sooner than later, because both those guys are entering the final year of their deals. You know what's funny, Stephen, is I never really thought about it until you said it right there, but I think more times than not, there's a greater pushback if a team uses a high draft pick on a running back like the Falcons just did with Bijan Robinson compared to a team extending a running back every now and then, like the Cowboys, when they give gave Ezekiel Elliott, his big deal, there was a lot of pushback, but if the Colts gave Jonathan Taylor, you know, it, it'd be a, a pretty big deal. I think there would be less pushback than if they drafted a guy with a, a number four overall pick. Would you see it the same way? Uh, yeah, I think probably so. There's, it's probably a psychological thing. You know, people have, or these Colts fans, they have a, a connection to Jonathan Taylor. He's a proven player, obviously, even though he, last year was tough with the injury. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, as long as it's, you know, not something that's in some other galaxy in terms of the amount, I think people would, would embrace it. But it is interesting. I am not someone who gets up in arms about people using high draft picks on running backs. I do understand the logic of, of saying this is not a great usage of a pick. I understand it. I, I get the logic. I think, though, and I wish I could remember who first expressed this recently, but I heard this, this opinion, and I'm going to steal it uh, from, from a commentator. I wish I could remember who said it. But the point is, I think what you're trying to do is you're trying to create explosive plays. And and I don't know that there's many guys in the NFL that do that better than a guy like Jonathan Taylor or Bijan Robinson, you know, looks to be a guy who can do that. And it's one thing if you, you're talking about a running back who has a lot of yards, but really is, is kind of a yard per carry guy who, you know, he gets his, his four yards at a time and so forth. We, I don't think you see that with Jonathan Taylor. You see a guy when he's healthy, you see a guy who, who gets his numbers through explosive plays. And, and that's, that's what this league is. It's a league where you have to be able to score in chunks and, and get yardage in chunks. Well, he can do that. If you're getting it two, three, four, five yards at a time, I, I'm feeling less inspired about that. So as long as the running back is a guy who can do that, then I, I look at it differently. And I think the league has, has really started to embrace that. I mean, um, uh, you know, I think the, the time, the, that's why you explain the Bijan Robinson, you know, pick right there. You know, and the running backs who, who truly are, I, I think now in vogue in terms of the guys getting paid or picked high, they're they're that type of running back. 
Uh, we'll see what happens with Saquon Barkley. I think that's the interesting one because he does have some of that ability. Uh, but you know, but but is it is it a was this a one year deal or is he is he back for sure? Right. I guess that's the question. But I think but that's why he I think is a guy you could justify it for though. He he's a big play guy who can can get you explosive plays, the kinds of plays your your wide receivers can get you at times. He's Stephen Holder, covers the Colts for ESPN, joining us here on The Fan. There was something that caught my attention on uh, ESPN's Get Up. And so Chris Canty, former NFL player, he was talking about if Aaron Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, where that would put him in the pecking order of all-time quarterbacks. And he said it would put him right in the GOAT conversation. And I almost fell over. What he was really saying mm-hmm. is it would put him in the conversation of among the top five quarterbacks of all time. If we right. walk down that road, if Rodgers wins a Super Bowl with the Jets, do you feel like it would be nearly universal that people would put Rodgers over Peyton Manning? Hmm. It'll be interesting. I, I do think... I do think that the the big void on Aaron Rodgers' resume is multiple Super Bowls. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, and, and it, it feels a little bit like the Peyton Manning uh, criticisms, you know, they were mild, I'm sure, but, but there was at, at least, and there still remains some criticisms that, ah, the Colts had Peyton Manning for this long run and it produced all of one Super Bowl title. I think that's a fair argument to have or a fair conversation to have. I don't look at Peyton Manning necessarily as lesser because of it, but, but I think you do. I think you can make a solid argument to give Tom Brady the edge. If you're going, you know, if you're going to make that argument, if you want to, to peg it to, to championships, I mean, it's a pretty solid argument to make. Right. So, so the, the the championships do matter. And, And I think so to take it back to Aaron Rodgers, that's, that's what he's lacking. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he has the MVPs. Uh, he has won a bunch of playoff games. He hasn't won the Super Bowl but one time. And, and I think that is, if you're going to you know, exclude him from the conversation of the best ever, the group of best ever quarterbacks, that's probably where he gets bumped out. So if he changes that, then it probably does change the conversation. I don't think he's you know, top three or four necessarily, but it, at least you can have a more – um, honest conversation. If you feel that way, you can you can make a more honest argument for him if he wins another one, particularly with a franchise like the Jets, who <laughs> haven't been to the Super Bowl in a little while, you might have heard. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No doubt about that. Hey, before you go, what did you think about Game 7 last night? Oh, just unbelievable. I, I thought for a number of reasons. I think the Celtics, I just thought their, their lack of days ago play it was shocking to me and and i I think a lot of that had to do with certainly the the pressure that that miami puts on you defensively but i I just it felt like a team going through the motions and i i was just stunned by it i was humble i I was as a celtics fan i would have been appalled (laughs) okay if i was a celtics fan, i would be appalled that just the effort didn't seem to be there so that's the first thing and then i just think the the Heat, they have this this attitude about them. They are not the most talented team. I do not think they're going to beat Denver. But there is something about them. They they just don't care. They don't care. Like, they are the most 
don't give a damn team I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's a thing, but that's them. They do not care, and they are not phased by anything. And, you know, people talk about heat culture. I'm from Miami. I covered that team uh, in a previous time, so I'm familiar with the franchise. And people talk about heat culture, and, you know, it sounds like this nebulous thing, and you can kind of scoff at it. I'm telling you, there's something there. There really is something there. And, and they have gotten Jimmy Butler, of all people, okay, to buy into it. Nobody got Jimmy Butler to buy into anything before mm. he got to Miami. Uh, the, the Heat have been able to do that, and let's look where it's gotten them. And obviously there are other, there are other fines uh, because they are so elite at scouting. I think they speak for themselves as well. So um, just a great job and a, a great example of a franchise that finds ways to get it done. Good stuff, Steve, man. Really appreciate the time. I hope you uh, enjoy the next grill session that does not include anything marinated or seasoned. Correct. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt, man. I'll catch you soon, Steve. Have a good night, man. All right. See you soon. We welcome in Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play announcer at Bally Sports Indiana, joining us here on The Fan. Chris, I know you're on the coverage of the Indy 500. You didn't have to, like, dodge any tires in turn two, did you? No, fortunately, Brian, I was in turn four. So uh, I was uh, all good uh, where, where our location was. And, you know, the good news was it wasn't uh, an extremely hot day. I've been up in turn four when it's been 90-plus degrees. So all in all, it was, uh, you know, a very good day, interesting race. And uh, glad to be a part of it as always. Man, where does that one rank compared to the other 500s that you've gone to with the outcome in New Garden with that pass on the final lap? Yeah, I mean, it, for me, you know, the two that, that rank near the top are in the 20 plus years that I've done it would be Sam Hornis Jr. passing Marco Andretti uh, to win in 2006. And then J.R. Hildebrand losing the race in mm. 2011 when the late Dan Weldon won. Um, those those are two that you know in my 22 years you know go down in history as far as you know making sure you have the proper call and, and seeing great finishes. Uh, but but you'd have to say uh, you know we've never seen a green white checkered before. We've we've never seen that, and so it was definitely something to experience for the first time. Man, when you like the uh, the situation with the wreck uh, coming off a of turn four with Hildebrand and like is that my mind just went to did you I don't know if you saw with LeBron missing the breakaway dunk against the Nuggets is that the equivalent of what we saw in that Indy five hundred? Yeah, yeah, because your expectation is you know the difference is when you're doing a race you can only see the portion of the track that you're calling, right? Especially in Indianapolis, a two-and-a-half-mile oval. When you're calling a basketball game, everything's in front of you. But to your point, you expect LeBron James to finish that play because he's done it 99 times out of 100. And for J.R. Hildebrand back in 2011, as I'm watching on the big screen in front of me and listening to my, my teammates on the IMS radio network, I mean, everything is smooth sailing. Uh, until he got to the short shoot on the north end of the track and there was a lap car down in the groove. And so he decided to either go around that car, he was going to go up, 
Well, you know, by that time, you, you're, you've worn your tires down, you get up in the marbles, and then he hit the wall. So, yeah, there's no question. I was setting my sights that day to call him as the winner of the 2011 Indianapolis 500, but all of a sudden I had to change and react when he hit the wall. Do you remember what you said? Well, I know when I go back to 06, I know exactly what I said about the Sam Hornish Jr. and the the Marco Andretti. I I mentioned that Hornish was catching up. Hornish was right on, on, on his tail. And then I said, can a teenager win in Indianapolis? Referencing Marco Andretti because he was 19 years old. I didn't say he was going to win. I said, can a teenager win? Mm-hmm. Because Sam Marsh Jr. was right there and, of course, ultimately uh, passed Marco Andretti at the start-finish line. Uh, for the J.R. Hildebrand, you know, it's like he crashed. You know, I, I was um, – so you just have to react to what you see. Wow, man. Uh, did, did you get any uh, pushback from the can a teenager win? It's almost my mind goes to some people get freaked out if you mention, hey, this pitcher has a no-hitter in the seventh inning. <laughs> he gives up a hit, and they're like, you jinxed him. Did you get any pushback like that at all? No, because I didn't say he was going to win. Yeah. You know, I didn't. Uh, I just said, can a teenager win? Because he had the lead coming out of four. But I had referenced right before that, and again, um, in our business, when you're calling a race like that, you only have about 8 to 12 seconds to say your piece. But I had said that that Sam Hornish Jr. was gaining, and he was right there. And then I said, can a teenager win in Indianapolis? And then, you know, I, I leave that for the play-by-play person. At that point, it was Mike King to finish the call. He's Chris Denary, Pacers play-by-play guy, joins us here on The Fan. Uh, what did you think about the decision for the third red flag? Were you in favor of them doing that? Yeah, from the standpoint, yes, I think. And from an entertainment standpoint, you know, we've seen races through the years end on a yellow, and it's anticlimactic. Um, so, I, I, honestly, I was fine with it because I want to see I want to see somebody win at the green flag. In fact, if you go back, Jake Query and I were talking about this. If you think about it, on the second red on the Pato Award uh, crash that brought out the red, if that would have been a yellow, Joseph Newgarden was leading, and it would have taken them a number of yellow laps to clean up the racetrack, probably would have finished the race. So if you look at it from that standpoint, Newgarden was leading on the second red and probably would have won if that went to yellow, and then he wins the race, you know, passing um, Erickson on the backstretch. What did you think about Marcus Erickson being blunt and saying, I don't agree with the third red flag at all? Well, I mean, I think if I'm in his shoes, I would feel the same way, right? I mean, I mean, he's going to feel a certain way because he, he felt like he had the, the race won. But, I, you know, this is just me. This, I, I'm just representing Kristen Airy. I was fine with the call because I think the fans, they want to see the race end on a green. And they want to see somebody try to win the race. And, you know, if you look back at Sunday, and, and this happens in a lot of Indianapolis 500s, on the restart, it almost favors the person in second or third and not the person that's leading out of turn four. And we saw Pato Award 
uh, they, they called off one of the restarts because he was so slow. He was trying to protect his position. Um, but, uh, no, I, I was absolutely fine with what race control came up with. And, again, Marcus Erickson and his team and Ganassi, yeah, they, they have the right to be disappointed, um, feeling like they should have uh, won the race. But uh, from my perspective, I, I was fine that they were able to finish it under green. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. How about the dragon move? Do you see uh, that being outlawed anytime in the not too distant future? Where think about that final turn. You were right there, and you see Joseph Newgarden dip like below. He's like going into the pits just to snake around yeah. to try to break up the draft there. Yeah, we saw Marcus Erickson do it last year. You, you see a little bit of the dragon at some other points of the racetrack, but not like what you see coming out of four because you have that pit entrance, so it's a lot. the track is a lot wider there. And, uh, you know, they're trying to draft, and, and clearly that dragon move is something that we have seen become very effective the last few years. It's not something uh, in my first, you know, 20 or so years, you just didn't see cars do that. But the last couple of years, we've seen the winner use that very effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's probably crazy to call that, right? Because it just... You have that vantage point in four looking at him like you're behind his race car. And it's jarring to see him heading straight for the inside wall. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know, man. I, he didn't do anything wrong, but I could see them at some point saying, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, it's interesting because I only do a few races a year. You know, I joined the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Radio Network for the 500. And so when we were out there on Friday during Carburation Day, it sort of caught me off guard. I had to remember about the Dragon move because they were practicing, and and I don't know who it was. It might have been Newgarden. It might have been Erickson. But it looked like they were going to the pits, right? They were coming off turn four, and they were going to the left. And all of a sudden, they swooped back out on the racetrack, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's the dragon move. We're going to see that on race day, and we, we surely did. Yeah, absolutely. He's Chris Denary, Pacers TV play-by-play man, joining us here on The Fan. There was something last night, Chris, based on uh, Game 7, where the Heat beat the Celtics, and Heat head coach Eric Spolstra said something that I thought was a really, really interesting quote. This is what he said. You know, sometimes you have to suffer for the things that you really want. Sometimes you have to suffer for the things you really want. And he was referencing the previous year where Game 7 Eastern Conference Finals, Miami lost to Boston. This time they got him on the road. And I just started thinking about that from a, a Pacers point of view. And I thought, based on the Pacers, they haven't won a first-round playoff game over the last nine seasons. And I thought, would you sign up for the Pacers to have a season just like the Sacramento Kings are coming off of what they did were winning 48 games, being a three seed, they get bounced in the first round, but would you sign up for that today for the Pacers this upcoming season? Yeah, because that means you're in the playoffs. And I think that's something that this franchise, if you look at the history over the last 25, the last 35 years, I mean, they're, they're, you know, in the top, 10 franchises in in playoff appearances and trips to Eastern Conference Finals, uh, Conference Finals, if you will, counting the West as well. So there's no question that that is the mission next year uh, for this Pacers group, and that is, you know, to get to the playoffs. And, 
And, and I think, Brian, that if we think about life and all the things that we do with our family, with jobs, how you handle adversity uh, oftentimes sets the table for your successes down the road. So I think in life it's no different than sports. And, and I, think, I think that's what Eric Spolster was talking about. Last year uh, gave them a, steel, a steely resolve that they were going to try to make an improvement. And with their backs to the wall after being up 3-0 and losing three straight games and having to go to Boston, I think they felt fairly comfortable. I mean, I, I read some of the things Eric Spolster said after the, the Game 6 loss. He said, I really don't need to tell them anything. Uh, they know what they have to do. So, um, you know, it, it, they've been fantastic. There's no question. When you think about, uh, you know, losing the first play-in game, they're down with three minutes to go in the second play-in game. They win. They enter the playoffs as the eighth seed. They beat the number one seed, and then they have to play the winner of the 4-5, and then they beat the Celtics. So, you know, they beat the Bucks, the Knicks, and the Celtics, all teams seeded higher than they are, and here they are now in the NBA Finals. So I, I think they've taken that adversity uh, that they've had over, you know, last year and used it to their advantage. Yeah, it's been a sensational run. I feel like this is a dated reference now, but remember when Ohio State won a national championship in football and they were down to their third-string quarterback? It was Cardale Jones. And I just felt like, okay, are they going to win the Big Ten championship? And they won 59 to nothing. And I'm like, okay, are they going to win a college football playoff game? And they did. And I'm like, are they going to win a championship, though? And then they did. Like, do you see the same thing with Miami? Because this next series, I'm like, I I think it's going to be Denver. Where are you on the finals here? Yeah, I mean, Denver's played really, really well. I mean, they've got Jokic. Jamal Murray's played at a high level. Uh, Aaron Gordon. I mean, go on down. Michael Porter Jr. I mean, they... You know, it'll be interesting to see how they react to this long layoff, right? They have not played. By the time they play on Thursday, it'll be about, a, I think, a 10- or 11-day layoff uh, uh, since they uh, swept the Lakers in the Western Conference uh, Finals. So I'll be interested to see how they handle that. You know, are they rusty? Uh, are they rested? But you have, to give, yeah, you have to give the Heat a lot of credit. I mean, all of us in, in the NBA world, we get sort of sick of – hearing about heat culture mm-hmm. uh, but they've been to the, they've been to the eastern conference finals now three of the last four years they've done it with tyler hero going out you know victor oladipo was giving them something he's out they've got undrafted players in, in caleb martin who had an unbelievable eastern conference finals duncan robinson gabe vinson and max Struess. uh cody zeller didn't even play three quarters of the year uh, they got Kevin Love uh, when he was bought out of his contract by Cleveland. And then, you know, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo have carried this team. So, uh, you know, Eric Spolster is one of the best coaches in the NBA. Uh, I would not put anything past the Heat. I would still go with Denver in this series. Uh, but the one advantage that the Heat have is they've been here before. I mean, they've played in a number of these series. And this is the first time for this Denver group. Uh I still like Denver maybe in six, but I could easily see this series going in seven. Yeah. Hopefully it's a good series, man. Really enjoyed the time here, Chris. Thanks for chatting with me, man. Hope you have a good evening. All right. Thanks, Brian. I'm Brian No in for JMV. 
here on The Fan. want to welcome in Greg Rakestraw, VP of the ISC Sports Network. You know, I, I swear I have uh, sports radio ADD from time to time, Rake. And I'm going to talk to you about the Indy 500 and beyond, but I just heard uh, some Motley crew in the background. You know what I mean? Are you a Dr. Feelgood fan yourself there, Rake? I, I can sing it. It tends to be a little bit more of JMB's age group. He and I are about six years apart. And right there, like, is that line on appreciation for Motley Crue. But I at least know who they are and can probably, like, you know, recite several of their hits <laughs> or even acknowledge who they are in, like, a picture. Because I'm not sure that that might skew just a little bit past your age limit would be my guess. Wow, interesting. Okay, so where's your your grouping? What, what's your go-to grouping there as far as bands and stuff like that? See, so for me, I you know, the 80s, I acknowledge the hair bands, but always, always much more of the 80s hip-hop and R&B guy. Oh, Even really? though I grew up around a lot of Motley Crue, ACDC, Metallica, etc. So I would skew a little more ACDC Metallica than I would Motley Crue. How about that? Uh, okay, that works. That works. I'm, I'm all in on Metallica, you know, all the way up to the Black Album. After the Black Album, not as huge of a fan. Have some good songs here and there, but... Yeah, I can fully get down with 80s Metallica. You and I, Rake, we're, we're together on this one. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so you look at Joseph Newgarden winning in dramatic fashion. You think about the psychotic tire, which thankfully missed everybody in turn two. Uh, think about Marcus Erickson coming up short. Years from now, what do you think you're going to remember most about Sunday's Indy 500? Um, I, I think... I think the tire will be forgotten about as long as, I don't even say safety innovation, because this series has always been so far ahead of, of other you know, series across the world and in this country. You know, this group has gotten that part right, uh, and so I'm sure they will go to school on, you, know, you, you saw the press release yesterday, hey, it wasn't the tether. We're going to investigate this and figure out exactly what happened, uh, because so much of the story of yesterday was, hey, it's the largest crowd since the Centennial Edition in 2016. And that has always been Doug Bowles' marker, even before the days of, of Roger Penske buying the track four years ago. Doug was always very smart about saying, listen, 2016 is always going to be the bar. Can we keep the attendance from 2017 forward better than 2016? I can simply you know, share with you from my experience of doing the post-race show and leaving at 7 o'clock, there have been twice in my years of doing that where traffic still been a bit of an issue. Hmm. 16 and, and, and Sunday, those were the two times hmm. you know, that that has been the case. So as, as long as that tire thing kind of quickly goes away, that won't be that much remembered. The fact that Joseph Newgarden got a long-awaited victory, it always seemed like more a matter of when and not if for him. Uh, the fact that he, he found a place to climb through the fence, that might be remembered um, <laughs> as well. Um, and I think, it'll, I think it will be remembered for the number of red flags that were thrown to make every effort to give fans a green flag finish to that race. How about that last point there? Because Marcus Erickson was outspoken about he didn't agree with that final red flag right there. Uh, what did you make of Marcus Erickson's comments and also the decision to go with three red flags? The guy that finishes second is never going to like it, and I understand where he's coming from. I thought he was great, even in the heat of the moment, to say, listen, I'm happy for Joseph Newgarden. He's a deserving winner. This is not against Joseph. This is, you know, hey, we should have had at least one more lap to be able to do that. Uh, and and I, 
I concur, but I also understand the logic of we're going to stop this as soon as we can to try to, even if it's just one green flag lap, to try to give fans the best viewing experience possible, that it doesn't end end under a yellow. Um, Clearly the line has been set at we're going to try to give you a green flag finish at all costs. We are not going to change the historic nature of this race. This is not going to be the 502.5. It's not going to be the 505 or the 507.5. In other words, we're not going to NASCAR this in terms of green, white, checkered. We will stop the race as often as we have to in the last, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 laps to be able to give you a green flag finish on lap 200, but it's not going to go past 200. I'm okay with that. I understand where Marcus is coming from. I'm not saying I disagree with him, but if we're going to default to we're giving you 500 miles, the last lap will do everything in our power to be green, I can live with that. Yeah, and to me, Greg, it's a little bit like, I'll make a, hopefully not a strange comparison, but it's a little bit like soccer stoppage time to me, where it's just not concrete. It's not set in stone. It's not like basketball, where we're playing 48 minutes. If we go to overtime, it's five minutes. It's not something that's clear-cut. It's a little bit by feel. And so I can understand the frustration if it's not concrete and thinking maybe the race is over and I won. But just like stoppage time where you might be like, we got eight minutes of stoppage time? How did you how did you arrive at that number? I think that you just have to go along with it because it isn't set in stone. The gripe that I but I would say I would say five hundred miles is set in stone. That is but the red flag is part is stone. Yeah. What what it's what it's really about was could you have thrown the red flag a lap earlier? Could you have gotten the cars in to, again, give him not one lap to be a sitting duck, but in theory give him a second lap if he gets past to try to then get around New Garden? The other thing that I would also hope uh, is that, um, and, and this, is, this kind of harkens back to 30-ish years ago when there wasn't the defined like, grass area off of turn one, and people would dive bomb on the apron on turn one, which was not technically on the racing service, but it was still paved. The fact that Joseph Newgarden was able to basically, you know, act like he was going to pit lane at 220 miles an hour yeah. and then duck back right in front of the attenuator, um, that's not safe. You could argue that any of the things they do on that race track are not, quote-unquote, safe. They make them as safe as possible. I understand the inherent risk that is involved there. But I would also say, hey, that needs to be out of bounds. If you're Mm -hmm. going to be in that area of the track, that means that you are going to pit lane. You can't use that to defend your position going down the front straightaway. I would think that might get changed for next year, too. Yeah, it was crazy, that final run off of four, and I thought the same thing. And, man, I I don't know. You think about the NFL and how they do make some rule changes based on safety. If you're in a car going well over 220, heading straight for a a wall, you know, like not to the side of you, like in front of you, I, I could see that being changed very, very soon. It's exciting, but completely unsafe. It was it was funny how Joe pointed out that was legal. He said, "I forget which interview he was doing," and then he's he's right again. That's where it's on the steward. Say, okay, hey, you got one over on us this time. You found the loophole. Let's close the loophole and not have that happen again. Do you know how they arrived on the name Dragon to try to break up the <laughs> drafting? How did they come up with the Dragon move? I, I I have no idea to find somebody smarter than me. Uh, maybe maybe it's the resembling of the tail, perhaps. Mm. Maybe it's the whole breathing fire element of it. Don't know. 
but 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 could be either of those two or or completely none of those two things at all. Greg Rakestraw joining us here, VP of the ISC Sports Network. Is there anything you could put your finger on, Greg, where the attendance was just outstanding on Sunday? Is there anything that you would say there's a reason why there was an uptick compared to other years? Um, I think the series is hitting all the right notes. And let's face it, the weather gods were kind, and we knew it several days out. Mm -hmm. You know, again, we have – and it's funny to see the difference in what we think is about 325,000 people and then what we thought was between kind of 200 and 250,000 people because that's really what the crowds were, say, late 2000s, early 2010s. And because the window of 2000 to now – is oftentimes the windows that we'll see in terms of replays because that's the age of the drivers that are competing now. So Elio Castro-Neves, longest tooth in the field in terms of 500 starts, this was his 23rd. So we're often going to see replays from, say, 2001 until now because we're showing you, here's when Tony Kanaan won in 2013. Here's when Marco Andretti got passed in 2006. Here's when Scott Dixon won in 2008. And if you look at the replays of those laps as they're going through one and two or three and four, you see a lot more empty seats then than you do now. So part of it is the series is doing so many things right. Part of it is Doug Bowles does so many things right as the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Roger Penske has done so many things right in terms of his ownership of the track over the course of the last four years. I do think there is even more of a sense of appreciation as to what Indy means after nobody could go in the 2020 Indianapolis 500. I do think there is something to that. So I think it's all of those little elements that combined to make Sunday's race so special. No doubt, man. Well, hey, Greg, good to catch up with you. Hope you uh, have a great rest of the day, and hopefully we'll chat again soon sometime. All right, don't set the bar too high. I'm the substitute teacher tomorrow, so don't be too good at this, okay? Okay, I'll suck. I'll suck on purpose next hour for sure. Don't go that far. Just try to, try to be mediocre. That's the okay. bar I feel that I can hit when I'm in tomorrow. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. There he is, Greg Rakestraw, VP of the ISC Sports Network.